From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Hey, friends. Uh, welcome once again to new affiliate KSET, AM 1300 in Beaumont, Texas. That is, I believe, our second affiliate down in uh, the great Republic of Texas. Did you know Texas is a republic? I was down there a couple of years ago uh, visiting uh, Dealey Plaza and then uh, met up later in the day with uh, Jim Mars, who's one of the granddaddies of JFK assassination research. Met him up at his home, uh, walk in uh, Jim's uh, front door, and what's hanging on the on the on the tree uh, rack or, or the hat tree rather? What do you call that? A, a hat tree or a coat tree? Just inside the front door is a holster with a six shooter. And I said to myself, welcome to Texas. That's Jim. And then Jim Mars went on to uh, lecture me on uh, how Texas is, in fact, a republic. And it is the only state in the union which has the legal right uh, to secede, uh, basically, whenever it wants. And, uh, you know, rumblings down there in certain parts of Texas that that's exactly what they like to do. Also, in northern Colorado. Well, northern Colorado... Uh, wants to secede from southern Colorado, and at various times, I think, the sites in, in uh, New Hampshire or Vermont wanting to secede. So it's not just up here in Canada and Quebec, or occasionally in uh, in Alberta, that we hear rumblings of separation. I always have to laugh, though, when whenever Quebec uh, up here in Canada is talking about separating from the rest of Canada, I always say to Quebec, if you leave, will you take us with you? <laughs> so maybe I'm a separatist at heart? I don't know. I just think smaller is better, right? I don't like big, monolithic governments. All right, enough about that. We're trying to reach Rosemary Ellen, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, uh, who joins us the second Sunday of every month, and uh, that would be now, uh, to talk about things paranormal and supernatural. And uh, she, I know she's normally in Connecticut. She's out on the West Coast uh, touring out there. Uh, so we're trying to reach her. We were going to talk about encounters with angels. And of course, angels are everywhere at, uh, during the Christmas season. Uh, you see them on holiday cards and wrapping paper and gifts and store displays, uh, store displays. Uh, however, some people will tell you that the presence of angels is much more tangible, uh, unexplained and more miraculous than most of us uh, realize. And, um, from time to time on this program, I have opened up the phone lines and uh, had people call in and talk about their angelic encounters. And perhaps we can do that now in the absence of Rosemary Ellen Guiley while we, uh, while we reach out to her. And hopefully at some point in this half hour, Rosemary will join us. Uh, but why don't we do that in the early going? Angelic encounters or encounters with angels which seems to be most apropos of the season. We'll make the phone lines available to you. Let me give you a heads up what's going on a little bit later. Uh, every two weeks, as promised, Nelson Thal, media scientist, archivist for the late Marshall McLuhan, stops by to deliver state secrets, his own brand of uh, news that you won't hear on the mainstream media. State secrets with Nelson Thal happens at the uh, the bottom of the hour. Uh, and then I was going to talk about uh, John Lennon towards the uh, the tail end of the program. Of course, we are now uh, into December the 9th. Lennon was killed December the 8th. However, he was killed December the 9th, UK time. Uh, a lot of number nines floating around the late Beatle. He was born on October the 9th. 
He died December the 9th, UK time. Of course, his, um, his song number nine dream, which I believe was released on the, I think that was, was that Walls and Bridges album or maybe one prior to that? And, uh, Revolution number nine, of course, from the White Album. I've got some uh, interesting stories to, to uh, discuss or share with you a little bit later in the program, time permitting. Uh, we may even get to that sooner if we don't uh, connect with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Uh, but why don't we talk about uh, angelic encounters at Christmas until the bottom of the hour? I um, have heard from a number of people who claim to have had some sort of an angelic encounter in the car just prior to some sort of an automobile accident. They claim they've been actually saved from certain death because of some sort of angelic intervention. One individual told me uh, not too long ago that he was driving along sort of a lonely country road and uh, was late at night and was very sleepy. He started to fall asleep. He actually did fall asleep at the wheel and woke up. He felt as if he had been shaken. Someone had grabbed him around the, the shoulders and shook him. And he actually woke up and he was obviously startled by this and uh, woke up just in time to prevent the car from careening off the road and uh, hitting a, a large tree. And he was traveling at a pretty good clip, 50 miles an hour in that range. And had he not suddenly, and, and for no you know obvious reason, would he have woken up at this particular point. But again, the sensation that he was physically shaken by someone or something. Was that perhaps an encounter with an angel? This individual seemed to think so. And they do seem to be, these angelic encounters, more prominent at this time of year. Now, if um, that doesn't grab you, encounters with angels, something else that we can do uh, till the bottom of the hour, we'll talk about John Lennon. And I'll just tell you a little bit of a story here. I was going to do this later in the hour. We'll do it now. December 8th, 1980, I was 16. And uh, my best friend at the time and I had just discovered the Beatles, a little bit late in the game, perhaps. Tom Balin, I don't know if he's out there listening, hello, Tom, uh, back in Brantford, Ontario. And we had uh, recently just been on a uh, uh, high school trip to Toronto, and we visited Sam the Record Man. This was the big pilgrimage to uh, Toronto. And it was one of the first albums I ever, I ever purchased. It was the Capitol Records collection, or EMI, I guess, co- collection of the Beatles, it was a blue, a double blue album. Their hits from 1967 to 1970. A reissue of all their hits from 67 to 70, or 66 to 70, my mistake. So Tom and I had this album. I had it or he had it, I don't know, but we played the heck out of that thing. I mean, every night. I was at his house or he was at my house, and we were playing the Beatles. Again, just discovered them. And about this time, this was the spring of 1980, and um, it was only about this time that there was rumors that John Lennon was going to end his sort of exile in obscurity and reemerge from the Dakota and start recording again. And I was so thrilled and so excited about this. So Monday, December 8th, 1980, I'm at Tom Balin's house in his parents' basement. And again, we've got Monday Night Football on, but we had the sound turned down because we were more interested in listening to the Beatles that we had just discovered. And so again, we're playing this, uh, this Beatle album. 1966 19 to 1970, singing along, as I remember, not realizing that while we were singing, if we had the TV turned on, we would have heard Howard Cassell on Monday Night Football say this. John Smith 
is on the line, and I don't care what's on the line, Howard. You have got to say what we know in the booth. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival to go back to the game after that news flash, which in duty found we have to take. Frank? Indeed it is. And there you go. That was the call, uh, Howard Cosell's call, Monday Night Football, Miami Dolphins playing in the Orange Bowl that night against the New England Patriots. And again, we were watching the game, had the sound turned down. I went home that night singing the Beatles to myself, not realizing that Lennon, my hero, had been slain. Now, Many years later, I was on another radio station interviewing a gentleman from, I want to say, Chatham or Windsor, Ontario, who had written a book about the life and times of, uh, of John Lennon and some of the interesting foreshadowing in Lennon's life. And one of the most interesting things he told me was, okay, think back again to the, uh, the Monday Night Football game. They're in Miami at the Orange Bowl. Okay, they're in Miami at the Orange Bowl. Miami is playing New England. It was during that game that we found out Lennon died. Now, let's play a little bit of the first track from the White Album. Can we do that? The first track, it's back in the USSR. Let's hear a little bit of that. You heard that opening lyric, flew in from Miami Beach, all right? So, all right, coincidence, right? First track of the White Album, the first track, back in the USSR, flew into Miami Beach. Again, the game is in the Orange Bowl in Miami. Now, the last track of the White Album is not so much a song. It's kind of a sound collage, and it's called Revolution Number no. 9. There's that number 9 again. Interesting. Let's just hear a little bit of the sound collage, the last track of the White Album, Revolution Number 9. Number 9, 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 Okay, when we come back, I'll tell you about what's going on towards the tail end of that song. Dream number nine and how that foreshadows what happened at that Monday night football game. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. 
just wanted to wrap this up very quickly, and then Rosemary Ellen Guiley has joined us, and we'll talk about angelic encounters. Uh, the book I was referring to uh, regarding sort of the the foreshadowing in the music of John Lennon is to be found in a book called Once a Man, Twice a Child. And the author is Dan Alice, who I've uh, talked to a number of times, and he resides uh, here in southern Ontario. Anyway, as I was saying, we learned about Lennon's death, many of us, on the Monday Night Football game. Howard Cassell announcing during a broadcast of a Miami Dolphin football game at the Orange Bowl in Miami. And again, first track of the White Album is back in the USSR with the lyrics, Flew into Miami Beach. Now, just before the break, I played the last track of the uh, the White Album, which is Revolution Number no. 9, kind of a sound collage. Well, if you listen for it, I believe it's around the five-minute mark, you'll hear in the sound collage, obviously they were recording at a, a football or a soccer match, as they call it here, but a football match in England, or perhaps a rugby match, you can hear the crowd erupt in this chorus saying, block that kick, block that kick. Okay, so let's go back to Miami and the Orange Bowl, the game against the, the Dolphins and the Patriots. The New England Patriots, shortly before Cosell's announcement, New England had just scored a touchdown, and they were just preparing to kick the two-point conversion. Just before Cassell goes on the air, and New England is about to kick the two-point conversion, what do you think the Orange Bowl erupts in? The entire crowd, the Orange Bowl, is saying, you've got it. Block that kick. Block that kick. There you go. A little bit of interesting foreshadowing. Uh, and again, that's uh, found in Once a Man, Twice a Child by Dan Alice. A very fascinating uh, look regarding the prophecy of John Lennon's death. All right. Let's talk now about angels. Very appropriate for uh, the Christmas season. And uh, always happy to welcome our uh, resident paranormal expert, the author of nearly 50 books, many of them major encyclopedic works dealing with the metaphysical, the supernatural, the paranormal. And I, of course, speak about the one and only Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Hey, Rosemary, we tracked you down. How are you? Oh, yes, I'm glad we connected, Richard. Well, you were very anxious to talk to me about uh, angels, and I thought well, that it's a perfect topic for this time of year, and angelic encounters. And, and I was mentioning off the top, you know, uh, angels are everywhere in uh, in pop culture these days, especially this time of year, Christmas cards, wrapping paper, gifts, and so forth. But we brought you on to talk about actual real-life angelic encounters. And are they more common at Christmas time, or do we just pay more attention to them then? We just pay more attention to them at this time of year, but they go on all the time. And um, I've written, uh, I think, now seven books on angels, and uh, this is a topic that's always been of interest to me since some of my own earliest uh, experiences involved angels. And uh, I've seen our popular interest go in waves. Uh, And right now, interest in angels is rising again. And I think it's because of all the troubled times around the world and uh, the fact that people are still having economic trouble and a lot of uncertainty in personal lives and uh, in our concerns about global situations and um, natural weather disasters and things like that. Whenever people feel insecure or uncertain, especially about their future, Um, it's natural to look toward the divine for help. And so interest in angels resurges. Uh, But they're around all the time, and uh, I think that they help people in many ways. And certainly if we pay attention to angels and we 
um, establish contact with the angelic realm and ask for their help. They're even more present in our lives. Tell me about so your encounters, Rosemary. It's actually kind of a wonderful Christmas present to give yourself to uh, to think about angels and uh, having them be involved in your life. Well, you mentioned uh, that, that you had uh, very early on encounters with angels, and perhaps that's what set you on uh, your career as an investigator of the supernatural and paranormal. What, 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 what were these experiences? Tell me about them. Well, when I was a kid, uh, and I thought it, it was the most natural thing, and when I would go to sleep at night, I would feel angels around me, and, and they would sing to me. And it was a heavenly choir. Um, I didn't see them visually, but I knew they were around, and I knew they were angels. Uh, and I was very certain of this as a kid. And I thought this was the most natural thing, and it happened to everyone. Well, it doesn't happen to everyone. Uh, and that's one of the things that really got me going about the paranormal when I got older was the fact that people have different experiences, and some people never have an experience that someone else does. Well, a lot of people have encounters with beings that they feel are angels at some point in their lives. Um, and quite often it involves a crisis situation, uh, and the angel is the messenger of the divine. It's the intervention of the hand of God, and it comes through the messenger of the angel. Sometimes it's as a mysterious stranger. Sometimes it's in a vision like an apparition where you, you see a form that you intuitively know is angelic. And, and sometimes it's just a sense of a presence where people feel guided and comforted and uh, it's, it's a palpable presence but is not seen. My knowledge, I guess, which is you know a mile wide and an inch deep, concerning angels comes from the Bible. And when I think of angels, I don't think of you know, something that's cherubic or like a baby or cute, you know, with wings. I think of kind of a frightening experience. I mean, whenever angels are mentioned in the Bible, you know, the first thing that the angel says to the person is, be not afraid. So encountering an angel back then, I think, must have been a very traumatic, frightening experience. If the angel's constantly having to tell people, be not afraid. You're absolutely right, Richard. And our biblical ancestors were terrified if angels showed up because the average person was did not expect to encounter an angel unless God sent an angel usually to discipline them. If God was unhappy with you, then he might send an angel to uh, punish you or discipline you or warn you. And uh, they were very uh, formidable encounters where uh, these beings had a tremendous amount of energy, a very powerful presence, and people were automatically um, taken aback by it. So we've definitely changed our attitudes toward angels and uh, our beliefs about the circumstances under which we encounter them. And the other, I don't know, misconception that I think is out there, and you can disabuse me of this, is that we, we a lot of people tend to think that angels are people that have passed on, that got some sort of a promotion. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say, something to the effect of when so-and-so died, I'm sure they became an angel. But my understanding is that angels, they're a created order, quite different from humans. They were created separately according to the Bible, and uh, they have their own uh, their own track, so to speak, like human beings do. They're concerned with the maintenance of cosmic order, and that includes uh, dealing with us as well as everything else in the cosmos. 
Um, it is, however, a belief that many people have that uh, their departed loved ones have become guardian angels for them. And I, I look upon it as um, the person becomes like an angel. And uh, this seems to be a choice that some people can make uh, after they pass over, that they elect to remain close to their loved ones uh, who are still living and to be present for them in that sort of protective, guiding way. But, but they're not angels. Now, a departure from that uh, was the philosophy of Emanuel Swedenborg, who was um, a mystic. And uh, he did out-of-body travels and uh, had many out-of-body journeys to heaven and uh, also some to the hellish regions. But he was of the opinion that human souls could evolve into angels. But um, that's not a widely held view in spiritual philosophy. What do these things look like? I mean, I'm not talking now about the guardian angels, which you say are not necessarily angels, but they may be a loved one who wants to stay close to us and watch over us. But I'm talking about the cherubim and the seraphim from the Bible. I mean, these creatures, uh, if I can call them that, I mean, they had, they're described as having, you know, multiple eyes and multiple faces and, you know, quite scary, really. But what do angels look like in your estimation? The most common experience we have of angels is as a pillar of light. Very few people actually see wings on angels, and that was really an artistic interpretation of angels going back to ancient times when artists uh, in the emerging um, church were allowed to portray angels. Um, they adopted uh, an earlier custom of putting wings on gods and goddesses, and w which were symbolic of being able to access the heavens, which was, of course, up there in the sky. And uh, angels really don't need wings. They are forms of energy. And uh, some of the biblical encounters where they have these multiple faces, multiple eyes, uh, and this um, intense, fiery presence, uh, yes, they, I think they can be quite formidable. The times that I have visually seen angels, uh, it is as a pillar of light, and the light is so brilliant that you can't look at it directly. You have to avert your vision. And uh, I'm assuming that this energy is stepped way, way down, uh, even to that level, in order uh, for human senses to perceive it. It is said that the angels who are much closer to God, like the uh, cherubim and the seraphim, uh, are so refined and subtle in their energy that we humans would not be able to perceive their form. And uh, they have to reduce their energy and trickle it down through the lower orders of angels uh, in order for it to arrive at a sensory level where we can take it in and uh, appreciate it. Talk to me about the angelic order or the hierarchy. We, we hear a lot about Gabriel, for example. He appears in Daniel. He shows up talking to Mary and Elizabeth. The Muslims say that Gabriel appeared to Muhammad and, and revealed the Quran. Gabriel apparently appeared to Joan of Arc. So obviously Gabriel is important to all three Abrahamic uh, faiths. But I mean, aside from Gabriel, walk us through the hierarchy. Well, actually, there are a number of hierarchies, and uh, we have one that's nine-tiered, which was uh, developed around the uh, 6th century, 
and is attributed to um, uh, an author named Pseudo Dionysius, who actually might have been a collection of anonymous uh, writers involved in uh, the evolution of the angelic hierarchy. But there uh, have been other visionaries who have seen 10-tiered structures, 12-tiered structures. Um, we have always perceived angels, the bottom line is we've always perceived them as organized into some sort of hierarchy with duties and powers. And at the very lowest level is the angel. Uh, and this is the being who would be like the guardian angel, uh, the angels who uh, we are most likely to encounter in our daily affairs on, here on Earth. And the more important angels like Gabriel um, are the archangels, the second level up, and uh, they deal with bigger picture sorts of things. Uh, and there are a very limited number of them that have been named in uh, sacred text. Who knows how many there are? There are as many angels as are necessary, according to some views. We don't really know how many there are. But um, in uh, some of the texts, it said that there are seven angels who stand can stand in the presence of God and that these would be the archangels. And their names vary according to different texts. And then above that, uh, we've had organizations of... Um, structures where the angels start to take on bigger and bigger picture roles. Uh, after the uh, archangels, we have the dominions, the virtues, and the powers uh, who would be uh, concerned with uh, high-level ethics and morals, the right use of authority, the governing of nations, the affairs of the planet, uh, that sort of scale. And in the upper tier, the thrones, the cherubim, and the seraphim, uh, would be angels that human beings would rarely interact with because their focus is on um, the, the divine and the, the seed of God and very high-level uh, cosmic dealings. These would be very high-level, uh, high-energy frequency beings uh, who would not really be concerned with the daily affairs of human beings. That would be left to the lower levels of angels. All right, I'll jump in here, uh, Rosemary. We'll take a time out, come back, just uh, a few moments remain. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, author of Ask the Angels and the Encyclopedia of Angels. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. State Secrets with Nelson Thal is uh, coming up. We'll, we just delayed that a little bit. We've uh, been joined by Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and we're discussing encounters with angels. And I didn't realize, Rosemary, this actually has a name. Angelophanies? Is that what you? Uh, is that how it's it's referred? Yes, angelophany is an encounter with an angel, an experience of an angel. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, a lot of people have them during times of crisis. And uh, they may actually be visited by someone, uh, an angel who takes a human form. It's called the mysterious stranger. And uh, this is someone who makes a sudden appearance, uh, knows what to do to uh, rectify a situation, and then they depart. And 
they're never found. Uh, when people try and track them down to thank them because they think they've been aided by a real person, they discover that no such person can be found or exists. Do you have any of those types of uh, encounters that you've investigated? I do. In fact, I did a whole book on that, which is available online as an ebook called uh, Christmas Angels, True Stories of Hope and Healing. And uh, they all have a Christmas theme to them, but most of them are mysterious stranger stories where people have been lost, for example, their car breaks down and they're stranded in a, a, a remote area, um, mysterious stranger shows up walking down the road, fixes the car, and and then leaves. And these mysterious strangers always look different. They have kind of a radiance about them. They often have very intense, brilliant eyes. They might be a very brilliant blue. They don't say a whole lot. They just show up and fix things. They have shown up to help people who've been hurt in accidents. I have stories of angels averting car accidents helping people who've been injured and who are by themselves. It's quite amazing uh, how the angelic rescue helps so many of us. And I think some people may not even realize they've been helped by an angel. They think they just got lucky. You also write about how most often these angels that take human form are usually male, sort of fresh-looking, clean-cut youth, and invariably well-dressed, polite, and knowledgeable. Yes, and uh, they have this kind of shininess to them, like a glow to them, and they are often a youthful-looking male. And uh, sometimes they might have kind of a curious appearance about them, like really curly hair, something like that. There are female mysterious strangers, and uh, many accounts of those occur in hospitals uh, where people uh, need aid, and they think they're being helped by a nurse, for example. And then they discover that no such person exists in that facility uh, by that description. So uh, I think angels appear in the way that is most useful for any given situation. And uh, certainly if they showed up like uh, the fearsome-looking beings described by our biblical ancestors, that wouldn't be very helpful to us. We would probably be more terrified and uncertain than uh, feeling that um, a friendly person has come to our aid. So angels do walk among us, and uh, they often disguise themselves just like us. One of the uh, um, icons that we have in our dining room has to do with the angels that visited Abraham. He had these three men that visited him on the plains of uh, Mamre, I believe it was, and they ate a feast he offered them in, in hospitality. In fact, I think that's the, the name of the icon, the hospitality of Abraham. And these angels conversed with Abraham, and he had no idea that they were, in fact, angels. So as you say, we may encounter angels every day. So I guess, you know, we, we ought to be on our best behavior when we, uh, when we encounter a stranger at the, at the door. Well, many people believe that angels show up sometimes to test us. And uh, they might test our charity, our willingness to help somebody in need. And that's quite possible, too. But, you know, that feast with Abraham sparked many a debate for centuries even as to whether or not angels could actually eat food. Or did they just fake it? Did they just look like they were eating? Because technically angels wouldn't need to eat. And it's a very curious debate that went on. There was a, another tale told about the archangel Michael 
who often took the role of the angel of death to fetch souls. And uh, in one story, he is the angel of death who comes to take Abraham away. And uh, he first sits down and uh, also shares some food with him. And there was a lot of debate over that, too, over well whether or not um, the Archangel Michael actually ate or just made the appearance of eating. Uh, I find it very amusing that we can get hung up in uh, uh, details like that. Uh, it's the appearance, you know, and, and um, it's conveying what somebody needs to feel comfortable with uh, in order for something else to be accomplished. That's right. We tend to we tend to get into these silly discussions of, well, if angels do eat, are they vegans? Do they eat meat? How does one, if one wishes to commune with angels, uh, or, or is that even within our control? Or is that uh, entirely up to, to God to decide? I think it's very possible to establish a connection to the angelic realm through prayer and meditation. And uh, many people have been able to connect with Uh, Angels they feel are uh, like guardian angels or very concerned with their daily life by asking, by asking for those uh, beings to make themselves uh, known, to come forward. And uh, in prayer and meditation, uh, we might get different kinds of responses depending on the individual. We, We might hear a voice in our head. We might have thoughts that are impressed. Uh, in our mind, we might feel a physical presence around us, and uh, angels are very responsive to to our petitions for help. Uh, and in fact, um, uh, they've often uh, told people that they stand ready to help humanity, but they have to be asked. It is not their purpose to intervene at will. Um, in, in our lives to pull our chestnuts out of the fire. Uh, and here again, people will, will then question, well, why, why should an angel show up and help someone unexpectedly and, and not help someone else? And we, we don't really know uh, how we spontaneously or even subconsciously make appeals to the divine for help. But um, in an emergency, certainly a lot of people will pray very intensely. Absolutely. Uh, Listen, Rosemary, got to cut it here short. Uh, my apologies, but uh, thank you for joining us. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, uh, talking Encounters with Angels, the Encyclopedia of Angels, Ask an Angel, and many more works. Thank uh, you, Richard. Thank you, Rosemary. Good night. Good night. State Secrets with Nelson Thal on the other side. Stay with us. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows 
is over Everybody knows the good guys lost Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor, the rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows And welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. And uh, it is that time we are joined by media scientist, archivist for the late Marshall McLuhan, a disciple of Penn Jones and May Brussels and uh, many that were uh, on the trail of the uh, JFK assassination uh, uh, teams. And a uh, great pleasure to welcome to studio for State Secrets, Nelson Thal. How are you, Nelson? Just great, Richard. It's after midnight. The ruling elite are gone to sleep. We can come out and play and talk about the state secrets that they don't want people to hear about. All right. Well, what do your um, uh, trusted sources within the intel community have for us this week? A couple of interesting items for us tonight um, that have come about since the last time we were on here. The first one is very interesting. It talks about the geoengineered snowstorms that are wrecking havoc especially in the United States. There's a mountain of data, including already conducted experiments, satellite imagery, lab tests of snow observations, and multiple existing patents, um, all of which point solidly to the conclusion that these snowstorms are being engineered with well-established weather modification processes. You know, Rich, I really enjoy getting into the patents because they are sort of like following the money. Right. And I have um, two known patents for the process of artificial ice nucleation for weather modification are posted on my Twitter site, Nelson S. Thal. All right. Um, now, the Chinese government has openly admitted that they are creating artificial snowstorms. And if the Chinese government can routinely create snowstorms, how much more advanced must the U.S. government be at this? Exactly. Well, um, I remember several conversations I've had over the years with Scott Stevens, who is a former TV weatherman from Pocatello, Idaho, uh, who one day... Uh, just up and quit. He said he could no longer look into the camera and tell the American public uh, about the weather as if it was some natural event. And uh, so I said, well, you know, what types of weather systems are being manufactured? Uh, is it, you know, is it the, the hurricanes? And he said it used to be, he said, but now it is virtually all of the weather. All of the weather is being Manufactured, and now Scott Stevens, of course, has sort of dedicated his his life to trying to to expose uh, this. Now, these patents, uh, who I can understand why someone, let's say, in the American Southwest, would want to seed the clouds, uh, and uh, you know, in in, uh, in times of drought, they need rain for their crops. That, to me, is a positive force uh, to try and control the weather. But who else is trying to control the weather, and, f- and to what end? Well, Richard, in a world of mutually assured destruction, nuclear bombs are no longer a way of of uh, uh, having of warfare, of mounting warfare, and so we other means of uh, of weaponry were developed for the arsenals. You know, the Russians. I point everybody to Colonel Tom Bearden's book, Soviet Weather Modif- uh, Engineering, a terrific book, and his second book, Oblivion. 
you can go into the Soviets were well ahead of the Americans in in weather modification, weather engineering, and in manipulating and changing the location of the jet streams. And right now, that's what's happening. They've maneuvered and changed the direction and the uh, velocity of the jet streams and are bringing cold air down into the United States and then using their buzz saws, as they call them, and the harp equipment in order to turn rain into snow and to create these snowstorms. I asked Scott Stevens, I said, what are the telltale signs that a weather pattern, let's say, for example, a hurricane, is man-made. Yeah. And he, he talked to me about, I don't understand this, I'm not a meteorologist, uh, but he said it's, the fingerprints are very obvious. If you look at a satellite image of, uh, of, a, of a hurricane, for example, in the eye of the, uh, the storm is a hexagonal, it's a geometric shape. It's not a natural formation. It's, mm-hmm. it's a hexagonal shape. So, I mean, can you talk to me about what kind of, you mentioned, you know, altering the course of the jet stream, and 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 I'm 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 sensing that you're you're talking about HARP there, the High Altitude Auroral Research Program, this array of radio towers up in the Copper Valley in Alaska. Right. But I mean, can you talk to me how that's done? How do you how do you create a hurricane and then use it as a weapon? Well, the, let, let okay, we, let's just stick with the snowstorm and we'll okay. with for a moment. But as a as a commercial pilot myself, holder of commercial pilot license. Uh, you can easily having I've been flying since the 60s. You can tell from the cloud formations that there is not that there is the unnatural use of technology being employed on the atmosphere in order to alter the weather. So the telltale signs for a weatherman is just to look at the the uh, jet stream and to look at the clouds. And you've seen on the Internet many of the pictures of the rolling type of cloud and the different type of cirrus clouds and uh, cumulocirrus clouds that come about as a result of high um, high altitude manipulation of the weather. Well, as uh, Bob Dylan said, you don't have to be a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. <laughs> what else do you have for us, now? Item two, a recent CNBC clip in which financial analysts admit to viewers that America is under the control of a group of central bankers who are building a world government just shows how the establishment has dispensed with any pretenses of trying to hide their agenda. And I have the clips from CNBC on my Twitter site, Nelson S. Thal. Listeners can go to that Twitter site and watch it. But at the height of the last economic crisis, Bilderberger member and Financial Times columnist Gideon Rackman argued that everything is in place for a dictatorial world government to be imposed by a technocratic elite. Now, what's interesting is... Let me just go on here and you'll see there's an interesting connection now with our first story. These technocrats have not been bashful in openly announcing what they are doing. A global government is now being forcefully pushed as the solution to all manner of problems, but specifically in relation to financial crises. We're being brainwashed this is what insiders are saying now to me. We're ma- the media is being used to brainwash people to accept the premise that a centralized power in the hands of a tiny elite is the only recourse and that one world currency is inevitable. Now, in early 2012, it's in, 
a Scientific American article entitled, quote, Effective World Government Will Be Needed to Stave Off Climate Catastrophe, unquote, argued that global management of the planet was the only means of combating global warming. So you can see that they can manipulate using weather modification, manipulate the weather to create the disease in order to offer the cure of world government. Right, and, and I think it was um, someone discovered in the minutes of uh, an annual meeting at the Club of Rome where they actually, uh, uh, that was the smoking gun. They talked about in this meeting, and this is going back in the 60s or the 70s, how they needed to create some sort of a, uh, uh, a natural cataclysmic event in order to, uh, which would later sort of be echoed in the Project for a New American Century when they talked about the need for a new Pearl Harbor. But the Club of Rome was talking about creating in the minds of the public a natural calamity like climate change. I mean, that's that's it right there. They mention it right there. And then, lo and behold, here we are 30, 40 years later, and now they're talking global warming and, and uh, uh, how, you know, we need uh, – uh, we need – um, we need it to all come together in some sort of, you know, national unity government, and and uh, this is, you know, this is the greatest crisis facing mankind, and so forth. So, and there getting you go. the world leaders together to start ta- not talk about it, but to finalize it and prepare the plans may be in the offing right now with the funeral of Nelson Mandela. So we should watch for what comes out of it and what statements are made. Everybody should be very careful to watch the statements that are made, who attends the funeral, and that will be very, this, this is, they use these events as lightning rod points to bring in new policies, which they've had ready to employ for many, many years. So we should watch that. Uh, they, what was the line of, uh, in the States, the, the, they never miss a good opportunity, Ram Emanuel, wasn't that his line? Right, right. So there's a great opportunity here. So they're going to be pushing to maybe use this this funeral as a vehicle for that. So we should keep an eye on that. Nelson Thal, State Secrets here on The Conspiracy Show. we got time for one more. One more. Remember Jacintha Saldana. The nurse who was duped in the royal phone call scandal. Three days after the call, she was found hanged. The news media called it a suicide. What was fishy about the story is that the nurse had access to a pharmacy of drugs that she could have used to commit suicide. Why would she choose such a violent death by hanging herself when she had other options? There was no evidence that she was suicidal, unstable, or psychologically frail, Richard. Just now, let me back up very quickly. This is the uh, other nurse. Uh, some pranksters, some uh, morning show pranksters from Australia called uh, the hospital where uh, the princess was, Kate, Kate was, Middleton. supposedly yep. suffering from uh, morning sickness. Yep. And this nurse supposedly inadvertently sort of spilled the beans and gave out some uh, some inf- rather embarrassing information. And that wasn't really her fault. In fact, she only passed the phone on to somebody else. And then she ends up committing suicide over that, which seemed very strange. At the very time. strange. Now, her body bore injury marks on the wrist, a medical report uh, b- based on her autopsy stated. Now, insiders are now saying that Saldana learned that Kate rented the womb of a surrogate and faked Kate's pregnancy. Buckingham Palace insiders claim 
couldn't risk a leak to the media, that news would have been disastrous to the reputation of the royals and their future king. The unexplained body injury marks on her wrist were the result of being apprehended by her murderer who made her death appear to be a suicide, insiders are now claiming. So the royals rented a womb. Rented a womb. Interesting. Kate rented a womb. All right, well, follow that one and we'll uh, we'll hear more, no doubt. Nelson Thal, State Secrets, thank you, my friend. We'll be back in two weeks. Have a good time and keep up the great work, Richard. Show's great. Appreciate it. Tim Spreen, thank you. Uh, back next week with a pastor, Jonathan Kahn, who will reveal the precise date of Christ's birthday. And here's a hint. It's not December 25th. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in the whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.